0: And once again, all of God's people said, you may be seated. And good morning and once again, welcome to Loudonville. It is Sunday, October 8th of 2023, and God is on his throne today. And all of God's people said, and today, as with every day, but especially today, is a day in which we need to be reminded of, of that marvelous truth that he rules over the kingdoms of the nations and in His hand or power and might. So, before we open God's Word this morning, I certainly want to invite you to join with me in, in a moment of prayer for the crisis in Israel. It's hard to believe just three months ago this very week, we were, we were in Jerusalem for an extended time and now to see some very familiar sites not only in Jerusalem but also in Tel Aviv that have been in the news and to see uh, all that has happened there. And so we want to pray for God's hand to move in a very powerful way. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the reality of the Prince of Peace to be made known in the midst of this crisis. A passage that I turn to frequently to remind myself and to help me to pray well is is Psalm 137, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, the psalmist asks. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come in the mighty name of of Jesus Christ, the one who is king and the one who even now in our worship we have crowned as Lord of all. And in that, Father, we are simply ascribing to what already is. Jesus Christ is the majestic one. He is Lord of all the earth. And he is the one who set his face to Jerusalem to go where he would give himself as the ultimate and only persevering sacrifice for our sins. And when Jesus Christ cried out on that Jerusalem hill, it is finished, we know that the work of redemption was accomplished and it is Father, for that very reality, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because, Father, we know that only through ascribing to Christ and all that he is will true peace really come. But even in the midst of that, Father, we ultimately pray for that. But we do pray as we should and ought for this crisis now unfolding. All of our eyes were shocked, our hearts were we're in anguish when we saw the terror of yesterday. The loss of life is significant. The abductions, Father, are, are fearsome. And Father, for all that will follow and for all the high-level negotiations and talks and acts that, that will come in these, in these days, we ask, Father, for you to intervene Such, Father, that we don't even know exactly all of what to ask for. Except, Father, that your will, your purpose, your authority would be recognized over all of this. Affirmed and held up. Even, Father, by those who may be a part of all that's going on who who do not know you. Father, we pray for your will to be done. It is right and good for us to pray for the preservation of life. It is right for us to pray for the release of captives. And so we pray for that today. But we ask, Father, that you will also show up in such a significant way that all of the world will know that you are God. So we we entrust this to you. We do not forget Jerusalem the place that you chose as the very dwelling of your presence. And now, Father, through Christ, your presence is also everywhere, all at once, always has been, always will be, but in such a powerful way, we can say even now, you are here, you are with us, and we worship you. And now, Father, as we open your word, I pray that you will speak to us It is interesting that that on this day, we come to this particular text. And so, Father, we will affirm the very heart of the passage we will look at today, that the Lord, He is God, Yahweh, you are God. So show yourself, unveil yourself, we pray, to the glory of your name, through Christ we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. I am not a huge boxing fan, and I'm not a fan of really any kind of action inside the ropes, but I did enjoy the spectacle of those heavyweight showdowns in the 1970s. I think of Frazier and Ali in 71 and then again in 75, so-called The thriller in Manila, Foreman versus Ali in 74, The Rumble in the Jungle, Holmes versus Norton in 79. I even, I even miss the voice of Howard Cosell, telling it like it is. Cosell once said, boxing is drama on its grandest scale. Hmm. I'm not so sure about that. But this morning, we're going to look at one of the greatest dramas in history as the prophet Elijah stands alone against 450 prophets of Baal on that dramatic showdown on Mount Carmel. But even that's not quite right because at the heart of this very conflict, is the drama between two supernatural beings. There is the self-existent, self-sufficient supreme God of Israel against the dark rebel known as Baal. Derivatives of that name eventually pan out to be something like Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Behind all of this is Satan himself. So at stake in this contest is the issue of who really is God Almighty. And so the showdown on Mount Carmel is, is one of the most gripping stories in the Bible. It's one of the greatest stories of all time. And so if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to meet me this morning in First Kings chapter 18. And I guess as as you're turning with me to that passage, the question might be appropriate: Are you ready to rumble? First Kings chapter 18. The background to our passage, of course, if you've been with us the last few weeks, is that King Ahab and especially his queen, Jezebel, have led the northern kingdom into unprecedented levels of idolatry. The worship of Baal, and you'll even see in this context, the worship of the Baals, it's oftentimes stated in the plural, was a demonic system that involved a lot of grotesque behavior, some of which will be on display in our text this morning, even involving child sacrifice. So three and a half years before this contest on Mount Carmel, Elijah appeared before King Ahab out of nowhere and announced a drought, not because he was petulant, not because he was ranting, but because on the basis of Deuteronomy chapter 11, The basis for a drought was God's judgment on the idolatry of His people. God said, you follow after other gods and I will bring famine and drought upon the land. And so again, a drought was God's particular consequence for the sin of idolatry. It is also a judgment that that fits the crime, if you will, because Baal was known as the storm god who was supposed to supply all of the water that the people needed. And so the the drought-stricken years have exposed the utter weakness of Baal to provide what the people need. Famine was everywhere throughout the land. People were suffering. Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, was in dire straits. It's interesting as you read most of 1 Kings 18, and we're going to be skipping over a rather large section of it this morning, but if you read that section, you'll find that while while the people were suffering and the people were starving, and so here is a king who is supposed to oversee the welfare of his people, he is more worried about his mules and donkeys than he is his people. That's Ahab. But now God in his mercy... Even though the idolatry has far from ended, he's going to end it in a very significant way, at least strike a major blow against it. He was going to break the drought in a most dramatic way by sending Elijah back to Israel. All of chapter 17 comprises the period of time of the famine of the drought, three to three and a half years. Elijah appears in chapter 17 verse 1. He now makes his second appearance before Ahab as chapter 18, verse 1 begins. And, and since it is a lengthy section, we'll take, it, we'll take it section by section this morning. Again, chapter 18, verse 1 begins, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Back in chapter 17, verse 2, God told Elijah to go and hide. Now in chapter 18, verse 1, he tells Elijah to go and show. And what follows then, really in verses 2 through 15, consists in part of what they call in the movies a flashback. And again, we won't take the time to read through this section this morning, but I would encourage you to read it later because it describes Jezebel's reign of terror in Israel. And how she ordered the killing of the prophets of God. Even as we follow the news coming out of Israel, things don't change that much, do they? Jezebel represents, by the way, so many today who who want not just tolerance for their own views, but the celebration of their own views. And if they don't get that celebration, they will cancel everyone who's opposed to it. That's what she does. She is trying her best or dandiest to, to exalt Baal in the land of Israel, and, and if you don't go along with that, you lose your head. That's what happens to the prophets of God. Also in this section, we're introduced to a man, a very outstanding man, I think, by the name of Obadiah. Not the Obadiah, the prophet who wrote that little book later on in the, in the Old Testament, but this is another Obadiah who we're told was, was an overseer in Ahab's palace. He was maybe his chief of staff. So here is Obadiah, a man who serves in Ahab's administration, probably managing his palace, overseeing the king's estates. He is a high-ranking civil servant working for a bad king. Some of you may be able to identify with that this morning. Maybe you find yourself in an office environment working for someone who is corrupt. How do you do it? Obadiah is your patron saint. He shows you how you can be faithful to God while also serving a bad king. He is true to his name because Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. Now, I'll just pause for a moment because I have this fondness for Obadiah because this was the first sermon I ever preached many, many years ago was about Obadiah. I don't know why it was a bad sermon. but. But he is he is such an outstanding person for us because he shows us how you again can serve even in the realm of politics without being corrupted by it. And he proves his mettle. When he hides a hundred prophets of Yahweh in caves, hides them from Jezebel's persecution, supplies them with food and water, this in the midst of a famine, so he is faithful in the office where God has placed him, and so I am grateful and thankful for those of you who find yourselves in situations and contexts just like that. Well, God arranges first a little quick little, little meeting between Elijah and Obadiah to eventually pave the way for Obadiah to go tell Ahab that Elijah has shown up and he wants to see you. So keep in mind that Elijah is a very wanted man. He is the most wanted man in Israel, and I imagine that every department and Ahab's administration received the memo that he was priority number one to, to catch and kill. They haven't seen each other for a while. So we pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Don't you love how people turn things around? Elijah has nothing of it. He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. The Hebrew word for troubler is a great word. It's the word ochre, ochre. So try on a little Hebrew next time. You're, you're facing someone who's causing you not a little difficulty. They may not have a clue what you're saying, but you can just say to them, you know, you're quite an ochre. That was a joke. Thank you. Man, sometimes you need to give me a little help up here. It's, it's, it's tough going sometimes. I'm kidding. But there's, there's this sense that I have not troubled Israel, he says, but you have, you and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the bales. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table." That's just a little side note that in the midst of this famine, they were doing quite well. They were eating before a marvelous display every single day. By the way, as you read through the account, it's interesting that the 450 prophets of Baal show up, but the 400 prophets of Asherah don't. The prophets of Asherah was, well, she was the partner to Baal. They bailed. They didn't show on the mountain that day. So Ahab was the flagrant troublemaker who is experiencing all of the consequences for his disobedience. And what's interesting is you read through the rest of the account, as we will do, Ahab does not make another appearance in chapter 18. We won't hear again from him until chapter 19. He's there. He's on the mountain. He sees everything that is taking place, but he is absolutely silent. There's one more thing Elijah needed to do before the rain that God promised, back in verse 1, begins to fall. And what I love about this account is the way Elijah takes charge. He's not the king, but he's the one who's issuing the orders. And Ahab just complies. He takes control, he issues a summons for all the people to gather at Mount Carmel. Ahab complies, I guess, because he likes the odds. Elijah would be outnumbered 450 to one. So the entire national leadership and all of the religious establishment will gather against Elijah. The contest, as we read, takes place on Mount Carmel, where all historians, Bible students, Bible commentators will tell you, um, Baal worship was, was already an active presence on that mountain. Idolatry flourished where an altar of God once stood. Now Carmel is a part of a range of mountains, sort of like the Adirondacks. It begins at the coast of the Mediterranean near the city of Haifa and extends in an arc with Carmel as, as the highest point in the region. And the word Carmel means garden or orchard. I've been there twice. And it's a fitting name because it is, it is a mountain of breathtaking beauty. Even as you stand on Carmel with lush trees and vegetation everywhere. It's hard to imagine this being the site of of a horrible massacre. In Ugaritic tradition, which came from the area of Sidon and Tyre where the worship of Baal originated, the Council of El, there was El and then there was Baal, the chief god, would convene a council, interestingly enough, on a mountain oftentimes a lush garden. It's almost as if, throughout this account, Elijah is giving the prophets of Baal all the advantage. And as we've seen before, it's something like giving them home turf advantage right here. So he sets it up on a place where idolatry was flourishing. Now, the rest of the, the account, the rest of the story really does speak for itself, and my goal this morning is simply to get as much out of the way as possible and let the story speak. So, verse 20 says, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. He's setting this whole thing up. He is going to show that the Lord is God, and he starts off right away with an appeal. He preaches a sermon. That's a good way to begin, I guess. He puts the people on the spot. You may have wondered why I have convened this assembly. Verse 21 says, and Elijah came near. That's a phrase you're going to find often in this text. He keeps drawing the people close. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how, will you, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. That's the bottom line. That's everything about what this text and this story is. Whoever is God, whatever else you do, follow him. That's a sermon, two sentences. If I read it slowly with emphasis, it takes 10 seconds. Preacher, heal yourself, you say. But basically, Elijah is saying, we have come to a crossroad. We have come to a point of of decision. He said the people were limping. It was as if they were handicapped, trying to have it both ways. It's like he is saying, you're leaning on two crutches and stop your waffling. Make up your mind. You cannot worship both God and Yahweh. They thought that they could worship the one without denying the other. But what they were actually saying is, God is not enough. I need something else from someone else that God himself cannot provide. And Elijah says, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. I know this idea of inclusion sounds so nice and so accommodating, but it's corrosive. It will ruin you. It goes without saying, doesn't it, that we live in a time just like that, where people think they can have a little bit of God, they can have a little bit of their horoscope, they can have a little bit of their tarot cards, they can have a little bit of their conspiracies thrown in, they can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, throw it into some syncretistic pot of stew and, and say, this is, this is what I believe, this is my life. And what Elijah said to the people of Israel then, he says to us now, God says to us now, choose whom you will serve. Get off the fence. If God is Lord, then he demands every aspect, every part of your life. There is no room for this kind of syncretism. You cannot worship both. It's not both and, it's either or. It's not God and my personal autonomy. It's not God and me. It's not God and whatever else you want to put over here. It is God. Elijah sets the rules. The end of verse 21, and the people did not answer him a word. (laughs) How could they? And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets or 450 men. We'll learn later that his, his sense of being all alone was a little exaggerated, but not on top of this mountain. It was Elijah against 450. Watch how he sets the whole thing up in verse 23. He he lets the prophets of Baal sort of take advantage of being on home field. Verse 23, let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, And I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. They liked it because they thought that Baal was not only the God of rain, but also the God of fire. And they thought, we got this in our hip pocket. Question. Why did Elijah make it about fire when what they really needed was rain? Why did he pray for fire to come down? And I'm just going to allow that question to linger in the air for a few moments or maybe invite you to hold that in the palm of your hand for just a few minutes more. We'll come back to it. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name your God, put no fire to it. And Elijah says, basically, you get to go first. Baal had the number of greater adherents. He also afforded them the greater amount of time. Elijah wasn't worried. Verse 26, they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it. And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. Not only did no one answer, there was no fire from the fire of God." You got to love Elijah. He's a prophet. And so, He dishes it out. He dishes out a little sarcasm. He talks a little smack, not for entertainment. This is deadly serious stuff, but you also get a sense that he is enjoying himself entirely. He's relishing this opportunity to mock the religious establishment. Verse 27, end at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, he's thinking things over, or he is, and the Hebrew is pretty accurate here, relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Your God naps. And they cried aloud, and here's the grotesque part of the worship of Baal. They cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The greater the effort, the more spectacular the failure. He taunts them Where is your God? They cried out and they mutilated their bodies. They failed and Baal failed. It is a reminder, isn't it, that you can believe in something so strongly, you can believe in something so sincerely and none of it be true. God and Baal are not on the same level. God and Baal do not coexist, no matter what the bumper sticker says. God alone is God. Now it's Elijah's turn. Again, they failed, Baal failed. Elijah steps up and says to all the people, verse 30, come near to me. He keeps offering this invitation. Watch closely. There's no hocus pocus going on here, there's no magic going on. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the stone of the, of the or excuse me, repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. It had been dismantled in the place of whatever the Baal stuff was. That tells you how sad the condition was. And then he took 12 stones. Why? According to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, they are in the northern kingdom that consists just of 10 tribes, but but Elijah is taking us back to United Kingdom, the God's people consisting of 12 tribes to whom the word of the Lord came saying, "'Israel shall be your name.'" And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He's doing this publicly, visibly right before everybody. He is patiently, systematically rebuilding the altar of God. And then he does this, and, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sillas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, why? Why does he go to this extremity? Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood, and he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. He likes three. Elijah lays on the body of the boy three times. He asks for water. To be poured upon the the sacrifice three times. So that verse 35, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So you've got this entire moat created around the altar of God. The wood was soaked, the bull was soaked. Igniting this, setting this on fire, would take a miracle. Every advantage has been given to Baal. Elijah just decides to make his challenge doubly, triply, worse, only to enhance the glory of God. And then he gets on his knees and prays. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things At your word, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Put it all together. What's Elijah doing? He is making it absolutely impossible for anyone other than God to do what needs to be done. So that when God shows up, no one else gets the credit. If you wonder what God is up to in this world today, and you wonder why He sometimes allows things to get as bad as they get, it's because when things do turn around, we cannot, even the church, pat ourselves on the back. He turns it around, He's the difference maker. But here is Elijah putting everything on the line. And as Henrietta Mears said years ago, great Bible teacher who influenced Billy Graham and so many others, who said, When your all is on the altar, you don't have to wait long for the fire. When your all is on the altar. You don't have to wait long for the fire. This is a challenge to me. Maybe it's a challenge to you. I I think it should be. Have you ever trusted in God so deeply? Have you ever trusted in God so much that it scared you to death? Where you say, if God doesn't come through here, (laughs) I'm finished. Everything is over. Maybe you are in a pit and you know that the only way to get out of that pit is if God gets you out of that pit because if it's up to you, you'll stay in that pit forever. Maybe God wants us at times to be put in a place where we are so scared to death, we are so scared to do anything else but trust him. I wonder what God might be telling you to do. What would laying it all on the altar be like for you? What is it? And friends, don't get weird. Don't do crazy things that sometimes Christians do that just it's not even, it's not even like waiting for God to do the miracle. It's just Christians doing weird things. I mean, what is God really, really asking you to lay all on the altar for Him? William Carey, the great father of what we call the modern missions movement, once said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. So, when you laying you're all on the altar. What are you saying, God, this is what I am asking you to do? And it takes us back then to the mark of Elijah's life. If you want to explain this man, if you want to know who he is, if you want to know who, what he's about, Elijah is a man of prayer. So when he is remembered by James, near the end of James' book, he says Elijah was a man of prayer. This is his life. This is who he is. Everything he has done, he has done through, by, in prayer. He is Elijah. Elijah, he is a man of prayer. It's the first thing he does. It's the first thing he turns to. So part of you laying everything on the the altar is you pouring yourself out before God. But what I know about my own life, and I imagine it's probably true about yours, that in the midst of a very busy week, it's prayer that usually gets squeezed out. I got so many other things to do, I can't pray. Luther once said, I've got so many things to do, I have to pray. So if we want to see the fire fall, it's going to come through prayer. If you want the awesome presence of God in your life, pray. If you want to see the conversion of hundreds and thousands in the capital district, pray. If you want to see the reformation of our culture, pray. The spiritual blessings come from God through prevailing prayer. The prophets of Baal prayed all day, they got nothing. Elijah prays a relatively short, simple prayer. He doesn't have to limp around for hours. He doesn't hop around and jump around. He just prays. And he says, Lord, answer me. Yes, he prays, God, vindicate me, because I've been following your word. It's really a prayer for God to vindicate the word of his prophet. But he prays. Now, remember earlier I asked the question, why did Elijah pray for fire instead of rain? because he needed the fire to hit the sacrifice first, because the people of God needed to be atoned for their sins first. That bull needed to be consumed by fire. They needed to get right with God before the rain would come. And that's always God's plan. And that's why ultimately He has given to us Christ. Because first the fire had to fall on Him before we could be made right with God. So if you are in Christ, if you believe that Jesus Christ took the fire of God on the cross and paid the price for your sin, then fall on your knees and ask God for big audacious things and lay all of your life on the altar before him. So here's Elijah rebuilding the altar of God, arranging the wood, cutting the bull all apart. He's doing this all for the sins of the people of Israel. It's first things first. First the sacrifice for sin and then the showers of blessing. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. It licked up the water that was in the trench. I don't think Spielberg could capture that. And Elijah prayed and trusted God. The fire fell, and and the God who answered by fire at that moment is God of all, sovereign over all. And here's the issue, friends, for, for us. If God exists, and if he is real, then He's the one in charge. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. That's the whole point. The Lord, He is God, so follow Him. Elijah prayed that God would be known as God. And so, verse 39, when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, (laughs) He is God. You know the kind of prayer that God loves to answer? In fact, he always answers it. It's a prayer for his glory. It's the prayer for his fame. It's the prayer that that God's beauty and power and majesty would be celebrated and honored and recognized by all. The glory of God. Here's the thing about God. Is that he has, as his greatest desire, to be glorified and that is the essence of goodness if that was your desire or mine <laughs> then we know what we know what self glory looks like it stinks But it is the essence of goodness and of righteousness for God to wanna be glorified. And so he pleads for the glory of God. He prays that God would vindicate his word. Jesus said in John 14, if you ask anything in my name, It will be given to you. Why? Because you are asking this in my name. You're asking this for my kingdom. You're asking for my honor to be known throughout all of the world. Sometimes what shuts up our prayers is that they are way too self-focused and Jesus said, pray for my glory. Pray for my majesty and it will be done when you pray in my name. It's a prayer for the glory of God and Elijah is fervent about this. We should be fervent about it. He prays and the fire falls. Verse 40, and Elijah said to them, who's the them? It's the people of Israel who have, who have recognized God is God and so seized the prophets of Baal. Let, no one, let not one of them escape, and they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty brutal ending, isn't it? But one in that time and in that context and in God's way, Was necessary. But I simply want to close by taking you back to the secret of Elijah's life and what will be the secret of your life and mine. Um, Elijah was a man just like us, flesh and blood, pick him with something, he bleeds. He was a regular guy. I know it's hard to think that, Because here's the man who prays and fire falls. How can you say he was not extraordinary? How can you say that he was not some kind of superhuman figure? He was just a regular guy. But what made the difference in Elijah's life is that he prayed. Prayer is the first thing. Prayer is the second thing. Prayer is the third thing. So pray. And when we pray like Elijah prayed, praying for God's glory, praying for God's word, praying for God's people, praying for the fire to fall, it's an insane way to pray. But when you pray like that for the glory of God, the fire will fall. Father in heaven, almighty God, The name that you gave to Moses on the mountain, Yahweh, the name that defined Elijah's life, my God, is Yahweh. Father, we pray for your glory. We pray for your majesty and fame, for your honor, for your power to be recognized on the earth. Father, we may pray for events across the sea, and rightly so, but Father, we also are praying for right now, right here, in this very place, in our midst. First, thanking you for the fire that fell from heaven that consumed the body of your Son. That you give Jesus, the Son of God, to die in our place, but Father, that's too great, that's too overwhelming for us to ever fully understand, and yet, Father, <laughs> so was Jesus displayed. On the cross, suffering to the fullest extent, letting out his blood for us to cover all of our sins. Thank you that through him. We have now been who believe covered in his righteousness. We have nothing to bring before your throne and nothing to stand for our own merit except Jesus. And then when we come to you through and in and because of Jesus, when we ask, Father, for your name to be glorified, when we ask, Father, for you to show up, in amazing, extraordinary, significant ways in our world today, in our life, when we look out and we see the ruin and the tragedy everywhere. And then, Father, ask that you come. May, Father, you answer our prayer. And may, Father, not only may the fire fall, but your glory, your power would be on the lips of every person Lord, He is God. And we worship You. Hear our prayers, even the prayers that we, our Father, expressing from the depths of our heart today. Hear and answer not for our sake, but for Yours. For Your glory and whatever is for Your glory, we know will be for our good. But Father, it's it's all about You. So make Your name known. We pray In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Let me invite you to stand as we worship.